We are a citizen organized, a citizen run, a citizen funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as Canada, the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada people are still afraid. It has not been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real-world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after the vax rollout. You're in a cancer clinic and you feel abused by everybody because they didn't want to know you. They wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point? A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and falsehood in an open market is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years response to COVID-19. Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Chris Allen Shoemaker. I'm from Toronto, Canada, and we're going to have a wonderful conversation this evening with three of my colleagues, all of us Canadian physicians, all of us with information to share with you about the COVID-19 dilemma, as it were, and why have we been left where we could not have full truth, full transparency, and competitive ideas in the fields of science and medicine. Well, we're here to talk about those competitive ideas, things that we've learned and known, and I'd like to introduce my colleagues to you. In the window just beside myself is Charles Hoff. Charles, Dr. Charles Hoff, is from Lytton, British Columbia, has had extensive practice there, both in emergency medicine and comprehensive care of multiple groups in his Lytton community, and we'll look forward to Dr. Charles Hoff speaking with us. Um, Below myself is Stephen Malthouse. Uh, Stephen is an experienced physician with an ex a great deal of activity in um, natural treatments as well as standard medical treatments, and he has been a professional in all of those areas and those mutually interdigitating areas, and I very much look forward to Stephen Malthouse talking with us. And Dr. Justin Chin is our youngest member, and we're so glad to have his generation with us and speaking with his wonderful expertise in both emergency medicine, of which he is a specialist, and also has extensive work in ICU care, and therefore was at a tremendous position to see the difficulties when the right agents weren't used early in this pandemic. So gentlemen, let's have a good time, and uh, perhaps I could invite my colleague, Charles Hoff, who I know so well from British Columbia, to get us rolling a bit on these topics. Well, you know, there is there's so much to talk about in this um, that when it's hard to know where to start. But one of the things that we have seen and learned from this pandemic 
is how public health and science can be weaponized for literally political gains and, and how by suppression of truth, by persecuting whistleblowers, um, by um, withholding treatments, uh, life-saving treatments in a multitude of ways, but by using the, 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 the government-funded media as a propaganda tool to mislead people, public health has been weaponized. And it is tragic to see that because public health is supposed to be about keeping the public healthy. It's not supposed to be about fulfilling political agendas. And so that, that yeah, maybe those are just some thoughts that we can sort of just to spring things off. But but that to me is the is the most tragic part of this that that, that the medical profession because this is a medical tyranny that we've been living in, the medical profession on the whole was not willing to stand up and say public health care should never be a political weapon. And I know that I was invited to have all of us speak a little bit as to what we thought when we first came to be examined under oath, and we gave our informations under oath in the various cities in which we participated within the NCI. And perhaps I could invite our next two speakers to tell us a bit about what it was like as they came into that role of giving information under oath to Canadians. Whoever would like to go next would be wonderful. I think we should go with age before beauty, so maybe I'll go next. All right, fair enough, Stephen. Away you go. <laughs> yeah, anyway, mine was a little different. I think from my perspective, it, uh, you know, I I personally haven't really suffered very much except for my, maybe my reputation, taken a few knocks. But um, I was listening to Justin's uh, NCI uh, thing. I think that people who are actually out there in the hospitals uh, and seeing patients on an everyday basis, I think that they probably have a completely different story than mine. Mine was just mostly identifying what was going on uh, fairly early in Canada. And uh, because I had the opportunity, I had the time to, to do the study. And uh, it wasn't that I was seeing those people in the emergency department um, or in the family practice that alerted me to the fact that there was, a, I would say, a scam going on here, um, a, a global a global scam. And uh, But more or less that to even, uh, you know, about uh, maybe May, June of, 2020, it became pretty obvious just from looking at statistics of the different countries that we really did not have a pandemic and that uh, some of the mitigation um, strategies that were being used were actually harming the population. So um, when I gave my testimony at the NCI, National Citizens Inquiry, it was mostly to put it on record of what uh, we had done in the early days in an attempt to, to, um, to give advice to our experts about the, the values of vitamin C and vitamin uh, D, uh, you know, uh, that sort of thing, plus alerting, the, you know, to the fact that some of their policies were going to lead to rack and ruin in the Canadian population. And uh, so that was really my role was to put it on record, as opposed to tell my own uh, personal story. So um, I, 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 I was just thinking today, I really my hats off to, uh, to Charles and to Justin, but also to you, Chris, because I, I was looking at your, your 10 day vigil in the uh, at City Hall in Toronto. I thought it was pretty amazing. So uh, with that, I'm going to pass it over to you, Justin. Yeah, I, uh, I was able to catch up with uh, all of your testimonies too, uh, very briefly on a, a two times speed so I could rush through them as I as I was going through. And I think every, all, every one of us was attacked in different ways. 
So when I reflect upon the testimony that I gave, um, and I think about that, I, I think about even before I gave that testimony uh, and the events leading up to it, um, I had some hesitation. Um, um, the same way I had hesitation throughout uh, uh, most of the uh, uh, pandemic on choosing how and when to speak out um, and what strategies. I think um, uh, that hesitation uh, is is something that we really should think about because for the topic of what we're talking about, truth, for truth to be found or church, there shouldn't be any hesitation for somebody to present an idea or a scientific hypothesis or engage in a debate as to something. People should be um, should should look towards figuring out uh, what the best way to move forward as a human species into discovering the truth and discovering knowledge. So why would we be hesitant? Well, we were hesitant because um, because of those things. And when you say reputational damage um, is all you faced, you know that actually is quite a bit more than. Um, just reputational damage. It can be characterized in two words, but um, that can affect your livelihood. That can affect, um, you know, the, the way your your tribe, people in your community think about you or or, or react to you. And um, those are those are deeply ingrained things, I think, uh, to human beings. Uh, we we live in a modern society, in my mind, here, which is much different than we would have evolved in over tens and hundreds of thousands of years. Um, being a part of a tribe was integral to uh, to life. And to flourishing and to survival, because if you were ostracized or kicked out of the tribe, that would mean like potentially dying alone in the woods or in the darkness, right? And so um, the attacks that we faced, um, they they hit us on a well, I think most people on a a more deep psychological level, because um, that uh, that is where um, um, people. Um, self-censored, even if they weren't overtly censored, because all you had to do is censor one or two people, and the rest of the tribe says, "I don't want to be." thrown out into the woods, potentially um, unemployed or alone. Um, and so I, I think that, um, you know, I, we, well, I'm sure we'll get to some points during this to speak about truth, but uh, I really reflect upon that hesitation. Um, and I'm very glad that um, many people found within themselves, everyone on this uh, chat, but also, I mean, you can name many people wide who, who, who spoke out, um, resisted that, uh, that uh, those attacks um, that uh, attempt to cancel us through fear um, and then um, took a stand um, based on their principles, their conviction uh, and their pursuit of the truth. Because, and I, I think I'll, I'll say this because I've spoken quite a bit here, but I think that um, one of the things you wonder about is, you know, the other side, let's just say there are people who, who, who chose to try to attack us or cancel us. Um, in some ways, um, you know, perhaps you can say that they had great intentions in, in some cases, maybe they, they were unknowing or they were just trying to, um, they, they, have, they were instilled with fear themselves about the, the severity of the disease and so on. And, and because of that, they, they projected that outwards to, um, to say, no, like we want, we, we want to be safe and we're too scared to, to pursue the truth. But um, the thing about truth is it, it, it needs it can only be pursued in what in a more of a decentralized way. It can't it can never be pursued if there's somebody gatekeeping the window of what you're allowed to um, explore. Um, by definition, then you're never going to get to um, truth if the truth is found outside of that box. Um, and the other Justin, side, that's fantastic. Can I just ask? Because the words you were speaking just there reminded me 
of something that I would really like to invite Charles to jump in on, if you don't mind, just right now. And Charles, you found us a truth from the Cleveland Clinic studies, and you were able to tell so many of us around the world that it was a, literally a farce that the vaccine was helping people, or the, it was a farce that the vaccine was reducing death rates for people or health rate difficulties for people. Could we perhaps continue going around our circle and each of us tell something of a truth that we have, an actual truth that we have heard, learned, and can now present to others so that they can know it with the certainty that we have it? Would you be willing to take the ball on that one, Charles? Well, yeah, you know, just we're talking about truth and transparency in science and medicine. And, and all of us here have been accused of being spreaders of misinformation by the people who were the biggest spreaders of misinformation, the yep. people who have who have um, revealed truth have been attacked. This is like a war against truth, where almost everything that public health told us about COVID turned out to be untrue. You know, starting with the severity of the virus, then the PCR test, then the fact that there was no treatment. You know, on and on, and literally, we, we called it the 12 lies of COVID because it was just all lies. And yet, any, and yet doctors were told that they were not allowed to contradict the public health narrative. In other words, scientific debate was banned. You were not allowed to express an alternative scientific or medical viewpoint. And truth was suppressed. And... And so th this, this was quite an effective tool because by, by suppressing the truth, by, by scaring most doctors into silence, it gave the public the idea that the doctors were all on board, where, the, where so many of them realized that this whole thing was a farce, but weren't willing to risk their livelihood or their career to expose the lies. And so it is, um, this has been an astounding astounding sort of moral integrity test or, or a test of moral courage, I think, to some degree. And moral courage is a very rare commodity in any profession and unfortunately has turned out to be very lacking in the medical profession. Well, we've certainly got people who aren't here on our screen with us right now today, Dr. Trozzi and Dr. Patrick Phillips in Ontario, Dr. Lichku, all of whom are being accosted by the CPSO. I too am being accosted by the CPSO with my license currently uh, suspended for the moment. Uh, and they're able to do it, the CPSO or any of the College of Physicians of Surgeons around Canada, uh, because they felt they had the right to do it and they've been given a message from above them through Public Health Agency of Canada and through Health Canada that they should do everything they could to silence the doctors who were members of their organization. Uh, but again, Drs. Trozzi and others have given us a wonderful example because he was so early in the game, so clear, so coherent on the subjects of how generic medicines were going to work quickly and easily and uh, they should be utilized. And But the opposite was what was done. Generic medicines were um, given a bad name by the press, given a bad name by the World Health Organization uh, when they shouldn't have been. I just wanted to return for a moment to uh, Justin. Uh, I would be delighted to hear in your direct emergency care circumstances, were you ever in a circumstance where you wanted to try a generic medicine and in a sense were prevented from doing it? No, um, I, I wasn't directly. I mean, I did see many patients with COVID uh, who came through 
Um, but the nature of how we've compartmentalized medicine, especially in the tertiary care centers, meant mm -hmm. that there was a, if, if you were to take a dividing line of those who were very uh, unwell versus well enough to go home and be discharged, the ones that were well enough to go home and be discharged, I think they would have, they would do well regardless. They, they, they wouldn't need anything. And so there was obviously the consideration of whether or not to use that treatment. The ones that by the time they got to me and were so sick, um, they, we were we were basically triaging them to be uh, treated. And even if I were to start some medication, it would not be continued going forward in the in hospital setting. So in the emergency room uh, proper, that uh, um, that that decision didn't. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was. I mean, I didn't have to face that dilemma of having to uh, uh, to prescribe something that might uh, that might. Uh, have helped and I wasn't able to, or, or, or vice versa. Um, and so I think the family physicians who were seeing patients that longitudinally um, had, had, had more of that uh, difficulty in, uh, in, in summoning that courage up. But certainly whether family practitioner or emergentologist, we were not being encouraged to utilize, say, ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine in spite of wonderful uh, information from around the world that it could well be very, very helpful. We were specifically admonished against that. Would you all agree around the table that we were admonished against that by our guiding agencies? Yes, you know, in, in, in BC, we've had more people die of drug overdoses during the pandemic than die of COVID. Mm -hmm. and, and the health authorities spend far more energy suppressing the distribution of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine than they than they did on suppressing the distribution of fentanyl. I mean, it is absolutely absurd. These mm -hmm. life-saving things they did not want people to have, and yet they've 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 decriminalized, you know, possession of of these previously illegal drugs. They are, are trying to remove, they're trying to make them more socially acceptable and more available. It is absolutely absurd. This is just going backwards, and yet they 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 blocked people from being able to get life-saving treatments that were incredibly safe and effective and want them to be able to get all these narcotics much more easily. And now I'm going to move to uh, Stephen in just a moment. Uh, but uh, Stephen, uh, in terms of treatments, we now want to be able to treat our vaccine injured in a successful way. We want to have enough available generic and other medicines and uh, nutraceuticals and the like that are helpful to people with their vaccine injuries. Uh, could we move over to yourself a little bit and talk in those areas of truths as you see it, Steve? Yeah, well, um, I think what I've realized in the last three years is that there's always a reaction to every action. And this, and um, I think if you look more from where you would like to be in the future and you go backwards, you see that to actually have woken up from our slumber, which is, uh, let's say, the slumber of the uh, Rockefeller medicine, um, mm. you know, and that we're creating a market through the treatment of disease for more treatment of disease, that to have woken up from that, we needed some kind of a shock. And uh, unfortunately, that shock is one which is going to cost a lot of lives and create a lot of suffering. But it's almost as though we could not have moved forward from where we were. In fact, we were slowly sinking into the quicksand of bad medicine unless we had the shock. So what I've, I've kind of learned is that there is actually a silver lining to everything which seems bad. Let me give you one example. The lockdowns, just this was Kathy O'Brien who mentioned this in an interview, that the lockdowns uh, where people were disruptive from their routine of, uh, of being able to go to work or you know go to their shore and so on, gave people a bit of a, 
a time when they had a chance to wake up a little bit to realize that something was going on here. So although we see that as a, you know, may see it as a very bad thing in which, you know, a lot of people uh, lost their livelihoods and there were suicides and, you know, overdoses associated with that and uh, many, many things. But there was also this waking up process, which was hidden in there that people were starting to already doubt that this made sense. In other words, if you can't go to your, your gym and open up your gym, you know, you're going to go like, well, why is that? And yet people can still go to, you know, Costco and uh, that type of thing. So everything that seemed negative has a positive side to it. And in fact, all the negative things almost seem like they were essential steps for us as a group to wake up to what's been going on. So that's my, I, that's my kind of uh, truth, I think. And um, I know a few years ago where we thought, oh, this is only going to last three months and everything's going to change. There was a part of me which was actually felt a little bit disappointed because I felt if we just went back to what we had been before, um, that we wouldn't have made the kind of essential changes, which I think we need for better medicine, at least, and maybe certainly for a better society, but it's going to be costly. That's, that's the unfortunate side of things. But anyway, that's my view of that. If you were asking a question about uh, natural health products and uh, Bill 36, um, you know, this uh, Bill C-47, which is uh, was, was passed at the end of June this year, which is going to essentially restrict uh, natural health products for people. I mean, that's an important issue, particularly from the perspective of integrative medicine. You can't prescribe, people can't find it on the shelves and uh, stores and manufacturers are going to be threatened with up to $5 million a day fines. Uh, that's obviously going to put a damper on natural health products and uh, supplements, et cetera, that people need. Bill 36 means that if doctor, which is a British Columbia bill, uh, means that if doctors don't do what they're told by the uh, Ministry of Health, uh, they also will suffer fines, uh, you know, closure of their practices, loss of license as well. So uh, it's, it's what we call a, a full court press. You know, I mean, they're coming at the products and they're coming at the people that are potentially going to be uh, recommending or prescribing the products. Certainly for me, saying that ivermectin could have assisted someone uh, in the health dilemma of having COVID-19. And we know so many millions of examples where it's perfectly been the truth. But for speaking that truth, uh, I haven't been hit with $200,000 fines like I would be hit in British Columbia for saying such a thing. But I have hit been hit with the lack of ability to have my license to practice because that's seen as anathema to the college. So there's there's penalties of various types, depending on the legislation, depending on the province. I just wanted to take a small moment, if I could have some help from Garrett in the background. I had a brief video that I just wanted to show for two minutes. It shows something that I did fairly recently in my continued effort to show the truth of information and of vaccine injury in Ontario. And if you could show that video to us right now, uh, it will probably get us kickstarted for the next section of our talk. If Garrett, you can give us that video at this time. He was the most special boy in the world. He was the reason I got up and went to work every morning. He meant so much to me. And living without him is next to impossible. It hurts so bad. And like any dad, you wanted to be told the truth about risky new medications. Yeah. And that people zero percent chance of dying because in Sweden and Denmark and Germany and the United Kingdom after two and a half years there was not a single child that had died of COVID only. I don't know. Any. There was no healthy child who ever died of COVID. Some with long-standing cancers and other things that were going to take and reduce their lifespan. 
happened to get COVID and happened to die during that exact time. But in terms of a healthy child passing away from COVID, in those four countries, it never happened. We weren't told those things. Families were forced to take risks with their youngest members and have the tragedy that happened to you and to your family. I didn't even know he got it. I didn't find out he took the shot until the day he died. The coroner had to tell me. I had no clue. I begged him not to get it. And children I miss him so much. I love you, Sean. And I love you for being brave enough to sit here in this backyard with us, brother. You too, Chris. And we'll keep everyone. We'll hold the feet to the fire of the people who misled us. That's what we have to do. This man lost his license. Been a doctor for over 40 years. The minute he started talking about this, they took his license from him and he's still going. That's a hero. That's a fighter. That's why you're my good friend, buddy. Thank you. I'll always be your friend, too, Dan. And Sean is always in my heart, too. Blessings to everybody for being with Dan and I this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll just speak for a few more seconds right now. It's obviously very emotional with Mr. Dan Hartman. His story, his longer story in that video was to tell the audience that he has absolutely confirmed evidence, pathologic evidence, slide-based evidence of Sean's adrenal gland, which was filled in with spike from one end to the other. His adrenal glands basically wiped out by the brown stain that can only be obtained by injected spike. When you get COVID-19 as an actual illness, it does not stain in the same way. It is only the vax spike generated by mRNA that is capable of producing this brown staining, whether it's in your adrenal gland, the base of your brain, or your myocarditic heart. And these studies, which have been done at most in a quarter of 1% of all likely deceased people from the COVID-19 vax, 99.6% of people have not even had the proper test to confirm whether they've died from a vaccine injury or not. And at this point, I'll just briefly switch over to Charles, if I might, because Charles, I remember that on a clinical basis, you saw early in your circumstances in British Columbia in the Lytton Hospital, the likelihood of vaccine causing dangerous circumstances to patients. And again, I'll, I'll get away from talking about Dan for it because it's so emotional for me. But if you could take us to some of those clinical settings and your observations, Charles, that would be wonderful. Yes, Chris, my, my first observations in my own patients were neurological injuries. And, and, and neurological injuries are actually the highest uh, category of, of vaccine injuries in the Canadian um, Adverse Events Reporting System, the CARES. And, and perhaps the reason why it might be is because the brain and the spinal cord and nervous tissue is extremely sensitive to inflammation and to damage. And because the, the delivery system of these vaccines made sure that those spike proteins literally ended up in every single area of our bodies. And so the fact that our, the, 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 the biggest category are neurological, I think reflects the fact that our, our neurological tissues are perhaps the most sensitive. So, so that's what I saw first in my own patients. Um, 
And what, um, yeah, what were some of those neurological sequelae? What were you seeing? Was it seizures? Was it other things? Yeah, and 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 it might interest you to know. Um, I I saw one of my uh, first vax injured patients that I became aware of. Um, so she's now two and a half years since her, and she had one Moderna shot. And her symptoms have not gone away. She had five cranial nerve palsies. Um, she had continuous dizziness, photophobia, that's light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, ringing in her ears, um, continuous facial pain. Um, it was like a very painful Bell's palsy. And a Bell's palsy is not supposed to be painful because it's, a, mm -hmm. it's supposed to be a motor neuropathy, not a sensory neuropathy. The, the, Pain is a huge feature of it, but neurological dysfunction, uh, you know, altered sensation. Uh, for some people, it was an, uh, feelings of electrical shocks. Um, so it's either weakness, pain, altered sensation, or or al altered ability just to, to function generally. And uh, yeah, that's what I saw early on. That's what I tried to, to blow the whistle on very early on. Because, you know, we're talking about truth and transparency it is never, ever appropriate to cover up evidence of harm from any medical product. Mm -hmm. And that's what all of us have tried to do. We have, the authorities have worked very hard to cover up the evidence of harm. And, and that's why they told doctors they weren't allowed to contradict their narrative because we're not, they don't want us to reveal the evidence of harm. But the Canadian... I was just going to interrupt and say, we've even had circumstances where doctors and the patients both knew that the doctor entered something into theirs, and three months later, it or CARES in terms of the Canadian one, and three months later, it wasn't even in the system. It had been scrubbed from the system. So as there is literally nefarious activity in terms of being allowing us as physicians to report things that we are seeing. Amazing. I saw that in the VARES, in the VARES as well, the open VARES in the US from literally one month to the next. It was between October and November of 2022. The number of cases of myocarditis mysteriously dropped by 10,000 cases in one month. Uh, they scrubbed 10,000 cases of myocarditis off the open VARES last year. And and a thousand they they removed about 1,500 cases of miscarriage. Uh, they, yeah, they're, they're these, they, they keep downgrading the so, so we're seeing the tip of the iceberg. This is just a, a, a absurd cover-up of the evidence of harm. And where they can't get away from it, however, is all-cause mortality. The fact that all-cause mortality is up in just about every Western nation by between 36 and 45 percent. That's a percentage increase that isn't even seen in world wars. It's a percentage increase that wouldn't be seen except once every two to three hundred years. Uh, uh, Huge numbers, huge changes, and perhaps we'll get back to those numbers later. But having heard your clinical description of that terrible neurologic circumstance for that lady, uh, I was wanting to again ask Justin if he might talk to us about some things that he might have seen in his clinical work in terms of suffering that was clearly vaccine caused, perhaps in your opinion, doctor. I think that sort of let's uh, let me say this. I, I do want to say that as we pursue the truth. Um, I think we have to recognize that um, uh, there are there are areas where I, I, I had, in my opinion, something um, was a, a vaccine injury and and a maybe a strongly held one. But I also want to accept that as a human being, there's bias on on our side too. Um, not to not to diminish anything, because um, you know when it is very closely temporally related. 
we had the vaccine and I saw a patient that had one only within a week. And then he, and then he um, had a sudden cardiac death and um, we could not revive him. And his wife asked me the question, you know, even to her, I couldn't tell her for sure that that was due to an insult or an adverse event from the vaccine, nor could I tell her that this wouldn't happen you know, in an alternate universe where he didn't get it. Um, and, and that's why it's so challenging because I think that um, there are many times that, um, um, you know, I was suspicious and still am. Um, and even going forward, even a case that I saw this week of a young person in, in her forties um, mm -hmm. who has um, pretty profound neurologic symptoms and demyelination seen on her, um, uh, on her imaging. Um, and, you know, might that a patient develop this, uh, this condition, you know, without the number of uh, inoculations she's received, perhaps, but it's definitely something that needs to be considered. At the end of the day, you know, and I think it's the reason why we're always going to be in this bit of dark and we have to find ways to look at the truth from many different angles is because the best that we know of in science for the most part are going to be the two extremes. The one extreme being the, the, the you know, the the tissue level pathologic uh, diagnoses that, that a pathologist can do, and then we can have some good, clear evidence. And then the other side will be randomized controlled trials where we, we actually try to eliminate confounding. And the, the middle ground can always have arguments on both sides. To me, what's tough is that we actually don't have good randomized controlled trials for, you know, uh, for this. Um, and the ones that we do, we're actually in our favor. <laughs> they, they, the, the, the stuff that they were trying to hide for many years showed you know, increased mortality in the, um, in the group that, um, that got, that, that, that got the intervention. So, um, you know, so I got what intervention, I'm sorry. They got the, what? they got the intervention, the inoculation, right. Um, they got the, the vaccine. Um, they had a worse mortality. They had a worse mortality. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. If you look, if you look at the Pfizer trials and you look at you, and then they, they did the six month look back. Um, okay. and, and they hit it in the appendix, really, and they did yes. the chart. You know, you could see now um, that the best that we have here is, is is randomized controlled trials. So I still see things. So for specific examples, I still see things every day that are suspicious. But I'm very cautious in my mind not to attribute everything I see to this, because, um, again, when you're in the when you're in the forest, it's hard to count the trees. But but when you look at the all the data together, when the things you've mentioned yourself, increasing mortality, um, uh, changes uh, in presentations at certain ages for myocarditis, um, the, the combination of what we do have from randomized controlled data, it's very concerning. Um, and But I think I think the public has woken up to that. Um, and I think um, the optimism I have uh, is that um, you can see from um, more recent data on uptake of additional boosters that that number has dropped down dramatically. So despite the push for it, I think people are aware that um, – that something's not right and i think our message is uh, getting out that uh um that you should definitely be very cautious about uh, any new product that comes to market well very good very helpful for sure i know that it's stephen's turn to continue on our chat so steve if you would jump in in any basis following uh, justin please mm -hmm. yeah well um i think what we're we're going to see is really a complete revolution of how medicine is practiced because i don't believe that the randomized controlled trial really it's a great idea, but it doesn't really give you much in the way of real life uh, evidence. You know, that's my kind of take on it, Justin. And I know that can be argued, but if we think about it, what does it take 5% uh, improvement to actually over 
to, to show that it's not a random uh, a finding by chance? And uh, is that enough for you to really use a product? So probably, you know, we're comparing, think of all the new drugs that have come on the market and how how marginally they are better, if they are in fact better based on, you know, how the study was run uh, than what we had before and how they're much more expensive. Um, you know, they're, there's so much that seems like a con game that's going on in, in Western medicine. And I think the randomized controlled trial, which costs a lot of money to do and cannot be done by small companies and, and so on, um, is, is, a, is an example, in fact. Whereas things like historic evidence uh, may be something we don't give much uh, credence to. And, you know, for example, if you've been using, uh, you know, uh, vitamin C to prevent scurvy among your sailors for all this period of time, and the other guys who don't use it, you know, maybe uh, uh, don't do so well. That would be an example. But I mean, some things go back a long way. I, I think of homeopathy as an example, which has been around for a couple hundred years. And, um, you know, the there are not there are randomized control trials supporting it. In fact, it's it's about the same as uh, much fewer than we have in conventional medicine. But the outcome is about 45 percent of them are very positive or positive for for the product. But nevertheless, there's a lot of. Um, anecdotal evidence and experience that that practitioners have and the same thing in conventional medicine which is kind of ignored how often do you get well that's just anecdotal evidence i mean you hear that in the hallways of the hospitals all the time you know or people say well i'm waiting for an rct to come out before i actually give you know this or that medicine whereas you know you, you may have been saving lives with it uh, you know for the last year or so so I, I think that uh, there are going to be some changes of which the RCT is not going to get the straight, same weight as a, as a, as a piece of evidence. No, I would, you know, kind I, of a I, I, you know, I think there are many aspects to, to scientific uh, um, pursuit of truth in, and, and they all should be taken in together. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, no, I, I, I think um, uh, if my, if my comments made you think that I was heavily in favor of that being the only way, I I, I certainly uh, don't don't want to don't want to lead you there because uh, even myself, I, I mean, I've been humbled by the, the things I've learned even throughout this that I've I've changed my mind on um, throughout the pandemic. So um, uh, I think uh, I think we all need to have that bit of uh, um, appreciation for all of the different uh, um, the, the ways that uh, uh, humans have evolved. Um, and, and and what treatments and what interventions and um, how we've approached uh, um, health uh, through you know millennia of our evolution and uh, it's a it's certainly more complex than I think uh, centralized medicine gives it gives things credit for uh, and I think that's and I think that's the area where sometimes I'm going to jump in here because sometimes crises require a new form of randomized controlled trial. Maybe we don't want to risk randomized controlled trial on roughly normal enough people, roughly healthy enough people. We don't want to randomize you to this arm and you to this arm. Maybe we don't want to do that. How about let's do a randomized controlled trial in a major uh, health center where people who die between the ages of 20 and 42 of heart stoppage, sudden and unexpected. How about we actually biopsy and for myocarditis or form of heart injury in all in a hundred patients? And then once you've done the 100, take a look at, uh, well, my goodness, 60% of them had this spike protein in them. And what percentage of them were vaccinated or not vaccinated? Maybe 40% had no spike protein in them. What percentage of them were vaccinated or unvaccinated? I mean, you can do randomized control studies in a variety of ways, and it's not always on the living. Well, guess what? We got a whole bunch of dead people these days 
who aren't being allowed to speak under the care of our pathologists in Canada, because our pathologists in Canada are being closed down from doing what they should do just as much as, as primary care people like many of us are here. So everyone's got the thumb on the scale. Everyone's preventing medicine, real medicine, including specialized pathological medicine from helping and showing the politicians and the bureaucracies what's causing a 45% elevation in death rate that only started to elevate in April of 2021 after the shots were started. There was no elevation in death rate worldwide throughout 2020 when COVID was raging through and producing, I guess, the same number of deaths that would happen with bad flu seasons. That's what, and there was basically a net of no great increase in deaths around the world in 2020. The elevation in deaths started in April of 2021 and have continued ever since and are cascading ever since. I'd like our pathologists be able to tell us why in a more randomized manner. And that would be exciting to me. Well, I think we have that. I mean, uh, Doctor, the late Dr. Arnie Burkhart in Germany, he did, I don't know what the number, total number of uh, autopsies he did mm -hmm. almost on his own time, but uh, he definitely showed that, you know, people, and these were people, many of them who were thought not to have died after, from the shot itself, but mm -hmm. they had temporal relationship to it. And um, he found that many, majority of them, vast majority of them did have this evidence of spike protein uh, deposition in their blood vessels and so forth and died from that. So I think that work has been done, but it may be the issue is more that how every aspect of medicine, including uh, autopsies by pathologists, was uh, suppressed to keep the truth from us. And he did wonderful work, but it was essentially only on about 20 to 25 people. Think of the millions of deceased. Uh, we, we could have a study of you know, at least 50,000 people if academic centers were taking the possibility seriously. Uh, Charles, what do you think of that? Yeah, you know, um, it, it's, you know, the, unfortunately, the academic centers usually rely on the pharmaceutical industry for a lot of their funding, just as Health Canada gets 80% of its funding from Big Pharma. So, so effectively, the, the manufacturers of these products control what research is done and, and they control what's published. And so, so that is how they're able to suppress truth and cover up evidence of harm. Uh, unfortunately, the regulators are controlled by the people they're supposed to regulate. It, it's, a, it's a profound conflict of interest. Uh, they're financially controlled. Um, so, th so that is, yeah, that's part of the problem is these, uh, the, the conflicts of interest. They're also sure. overwhelmed. I mean, I'll give them some credit. Like I, I know from our site when we have, uh, when we, when I, when I speak personally to the, the, the medical examiner about cases and, uh, discuss, um, they tell me how, how overwhelmed they are with the amount of, uh, uh, of, of individuals who've sadly passed away and not just from causes that we that, that we're concerned about but also from fentanyl overdoses and so on so there's only uh, you know they they have the they, they're overworked and overwhelmed they have limited resources to pursue um such testing it certainly should be done and i would say that we definitely need to do it in some sort of um uh, rigorous manner uh so that we can extrapolate out statistically what what's going on here um but um they they, they will 
to deviate from what they're currently doing and the, uh, to to add additional steps into the process um, with additional staining or different uh, areas to determine um, that takes extra work. And if there's no incentive for them to do that, um, and in the absence of that, they will make a, a judgment call or an expert opinion a call uh, to put something on the final cause or the interim cause of the uh, of the death certificates and then that case will be done and and the next one will come by so uh it it, it actually requires a huge amount of motivation to do that and, and you're right the malaligned incentives of the academia um of funding and so on that might that might limit that from even getting off uh, off the ground so um the challenge will be to find jurisdictions where they actually are interested in this and they take it seriously um, and they're willing to pursue this um, no matter what they find. Um, and, and, and thus far, uh, uh, I, I don't know of too many myself, but I hope, it, uh, I, I hope more people do take it seriously. Dr. Chin, I really appreciate those exact words and how you, because you're coming from a more academic setting uh, than basically the rest of us. And I thank you for that information big time. I have to step away from them being on the screen for about a minute and a half. I would like to invite Charles and Steve to continue the conversation, and I'll be right back too. Hmm. Wonder where he's going. He's going to go to have a beer, do you think? <laughs> yeah, or a cup of tea. Uh, maybe. You know, maybe. one of the things that I think has been most tragic in this whole pandemic is the is the medical apartheid. Um, you know, where where people who refuse to have their clot shot were barred from cinemas and restaurants and travel and sports and education and training and work. Um, I mean, this is exactly what happened in apartheid South Africa, where if you were the wrong skin color, you got barred from all those things, all of those. Uh, and exactly the same happened here in people who didn't trust or didn't want these injections. And so this is a this is a very, very shameful time for the medical profession, where unfortunately many doctors were part of this hatred and discrimination against those that didn't want the injections. And it is a very shameful time in Canada's history and in, in the history of the medical profession. Uh, I, I, I just really hope that people can learn from this and realize that that kind of discrimination and making one group of people hate a minority group is never, ever acceptable under any circumstances. Dr. Hoff, I 100% uh, I agree with you there. Um, I, I will tell you how I, I, I like my language I use specifically slightly different than yours because you use the words didn't trust or didn't use. That beginning negative part, I when I when I speak to people, I always frame it differently. I say who chose to exercise their medical autonomy. Um, I don't like to use the negative to start that. Not, I mean, I get maybe a little bit semantics, but but we should people shouldn't even be looking at negative as we're the untrusting ones or the ones who don't want something as if we're even the word hesitant. It's no, it's no. We we actively chose to to stand for principles. We actively chose to. Um, uh, to pursue um, what we thought was in the what was going to be the best for our health, and we actively chose to exercise our medical autonomy. So I, I agree with your sentence, but I, that's the way I, I, I tell people because um, um, because I, I think the, the the language war is also important in this. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole propaganda marketing side of it, right? It's the language that you use. 
And yep. uh, so, yeah, it's yep. really important. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, much of it we just is really um, is friction and people who couldn't go out for dinner, or who couldn't travel. I mean, many of us, um, I think it just really solidified our our determination to keep to keep resisting. Right. And uh, because and, and, and people saw or even now are seeing the absurdity of many of these measures. And I like the one about, uh, you know, going into a restaurant and having to wear a mask to the table, but then you could take it off and things like that. I mean, if you can't see that as being ridiculous, I mean, you are a goner, let's say. And um, yeah. but so many of these things are, are actually necessary. That's what I think. It's that, you know, we've we've had we're seeing all the ways that we've been tricked in the past. They're all being put out for us very clearly. Even, you know, having war in Ukraine, it's like, you know, here's a distraction we need over here. And uh, and the different things are brought up. The mainstream media is starting to show their their real their true colors and how they've been controlling narratives for so many years. And medicine's exactly the same. We've we've actually been controlling the medical narrative for many years. And it's time to to, to shake that off and, and move forward. And how are you gonna do it, right? without stopping people from going into a restaurant with a mask until they sit down. I mean, you've got to have something which is so kind of just uh, undigest, indigestible that um, that people, you know, start to gag on it. So mm. all necessary, right? Unfortunately. Thank yeah, you. Think, um, Go ahead. A quick comment is that is that I think some people are, are, are saying, well, you know, it's over now, we should move on. But I think the important no, thing yeah. is to point out these things, to point out the absurdities um, and, and remind people of, you know, what people might even start to forget um, how, you know, uh, you know, how ridiculous some of the policies uh, and uh, protocols and that we were implementing in hospitals and the man and things that were mandated throughout across society. Uh, you know, it's it, it was absurd. Right. And um the fact that uh, um, the world went along with it is uh, is equally outrageous. But we have to keep reminding people of that so they can uh, uh, can realize that the only reason they went along with it, or I'm sure there are multiple reasons, is because their emotions were captured by fear. They they clearly could not have been um, uh, having you know complete rationality uh, in during these times. Uh, and so fear is a powerful motivator. So I think the only way to get past that is to is 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 to try to break that fear and break those emotions and and remember that i mean to be honest i i feel when i see people still to this day um who don't appreciate probably the 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 statistics and the the the, the current level of risk and so on who are wearing you know a cloth mask outdoors uh with the current severity of disease and transmissible rates and all of the factors that go into that risk assessment um i, I don't you know you, you have to you have to Wonder if well, the simple risk. Sorry to jump in on you, but there's a simple risk assessment. The simple risk assessment is masks don't work for aerosolized viruses at all. So the simple risk assessment is don't wear it anywhere unless you're the actual surgeon. Those are the people who should only be wearing masks these days. That's always been the truth. People yeah, have the, hidden from that truth, and it's time to call them on it because it's all complete bullshit. Yeah, but when yeah, I say that, I, the reason that's I was not a, that's not a medical language. That's not medical language. language Sorry, me. but it is. I'm gonna finish this. Is that Calling on them is one calling out. I've thought long about what to do about that because it's challenging because those people may have, um, they could be captured a lot by that fear. And so they, sh in some ways, um, there's some of not all of them, but maybe may like victims of trauma, right? They've been traumatized oh. by it. And, 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 and so we have to think, 
well, if somebody was traumatized in one way and you tell them that, you know, whatever caused their trauma previously, you know, I have to come up with some random example. If it was, they were injured in a boat or a bicycle and now they no longer want to go on a bicycle. They've got this irrational fear that they're going to die from it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't call them out on how ridiculous their fear is. You would, you, you would break through that with compassion um, and kindness to, to try to, expo to, 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 to get through that the reason they have that is, is you need to consider whether or not it's based in fear and it's based in trauma. Um, and it's not their fault. It's because yeah. they, were, they, they got that trauma from the endless propaganda that they were being um, sub subject to by media and by other, um, by other, you know, experts that they trusted who were um, either biased or, or, or unaware of, um, of, of the way that the data was being presented early on. Um, because even the th surveys that did that were taken at the time showed that people vastly overestimated um, their risk of death, even if they, once they've contracted it. And, those, and, and people stated that outright in their surveys. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, I've been, I'm just going to, as moderator, I've been asked at a certain point to kind of get oh, us into another subject away, matter yeah. here yes, and there. When you went away, we voted you off the moderator. I don't know if you know that, but uh, it's okay. Well, having not heard that, I'll continue as moderator. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that uh, um, our colleagues back in Alberta, they were a little bit interested in uh, some of the, uh, well, anyway, just the, I was wondering if Garrett could possibly bring up that film uh, of which just the first two minutes or so will show what we call the secondary film. If it is available, Garrett, and you could allow us to have that particular first two and a half minutes or so from the film that you had in your possession, could we take a look at that if it's available the next two and a half minutes, and then we'll continue on into other areas. Thank you, Garrett, if it is available. And we'll just see, yeah, it looks like it is. So you're stuck with two and a half minutes of me. I'm not hearing any audio. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, the audio is not working. It's no problem. Uh, we could take, Garrett, if you could take that off, then we don't want it. If it's not working, it's just fine. We'll take it off, and uh, but I'll move into the subject area nonetheless. And the subject area that uh, I wanted us to spend a little bit of time on, uh, gentlemen, was what's the truth in terms of how the vax, the human engineered vax, which also utilized what was done in terms of the human engineering of the germ itself, because it's now very well known by any competent scientists in the retrovirus and the biologic areas that this was a created entity by humans. What do we know of how the harm is happening to the human cells? What do we know? And I'll lead off by stating that Dr. Palmer, Dr. Burkhart, and Dr. Bakhti, among any other, other serious scientists, pathologists especially, and immunological pathologists are telling us that the reason that the harms are so various, the reason that it's neurologic harms for some people, and the reason that it's cardiac harms for other people, and the reason that it's a uh, a kidney failure harm caused by attack on kidney cells for other people. The common thread is that when you've got 40 trillion spikes going into the body with every shot, 
And those 40 trillion spikes can go to just about any organ. All of them essentially are going to be flags that are waving to the immune system and saying, come and get us. And that's why the results are so strange. That's why so many people have so many different kinds of conditions, because it just simply boils down to which element of your body did your immune system discover and see that they didn't believe was their heart anymore. The immune system didn't believe it was their brain anymore. The immune system didn't believe it was their kidney anymore because there was this evidence of a non-human element spike protein that was non-human and they were going to attack the cells that contained it and that's why the cells are damaged in any case i'm just speaking what drs burkhart bakti and palmer and cole and so many others have said i just wondered around the table if we'd like to talk a little bit further about not just the covid injury to us but the vaccine injuries which is at least possible in a lot of people I leave it to anyone to jump in. Well, I think there are really two categories. One is the random, random effects may have had, and maybe we see that mostly in young people. But in our experience in traveling, when we spoke to people who had had COVID shot injury, because we're now talking about the COVID uh, vaccine yes. itself, is that it seemed to accentuate where people already had inflammatory conditions. You remember that, Charles, when we were talking to people, their, arth their arthritis would be worse or their headaches would be worse, something like that. Yeah, for a lot of people, what, whatever your weak point was, that's where it made things worse. And, and I think that was literally because it was designed to go everywhere. So whatever your fragile, whatever your Achilles heel happened to be, mm -hmm. that's where it would, it would cause the problem. So for those people who were prone to, maybe slightly more prone to clotting would get clots. Those that were slightly more prone to autoimmune problems would get that or, or skin problems or, or whatever mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. and, and if one looks at the Pfizer's, you know, the, the, the very first package of Pfizer documents that were released um, about 18 months ago. Uh, well, actually, was it really, yes, I think that anyway, they were Pfizer's list of, of their cumulative adverse events of interest that they recorded in the first 90 days of the VAX rollout literally reads, I mean, I mean and, and so obviously the list is much bigger now, but that was Pfizer's list from the first 90 days, mm -hmm. literally reads like a medical dictionary. It's literally everything you can think of. It was 1,287 medical conditions created by this injection that affected everything you could think of. And and so it, it it's, it's horrifying. This has broken all records for a variety of side effects. And Pfizer Pfizer spoke to that. Pfizer said that this is what we found in our first three four months using yeah. going out to small populations of people. They literally were admitting that in their own papers, which they gave to the FDA. But they weren't expecting it to be seen. They wanted it hidden for seventy five years. But they were actually honest in terms of what they showed the FDA as how multiple areas of the human body were going to suffer from these vaccines. Well, Is that what we're seeing from, from yeah, Pfizer, Charles? They weren't honest because they were nice people. They were forced to do it by the courts. The FDA supported their, um, their uh, request to have this, this data concealed for 75 years. And that's because the FDA get 50% of their funding by the pharmaceutical industry. They're also a puppet of Big Pharma, just like Health Canada is. Uh, so so um, yeah, if that was a that was a those were court ordered document releases that showed how much Pfizer knew about the harm. 
Yeah. And there are many different mechanisms too. I mean, we, we spike protein would be the most simplistic mechanism. I guess the, uh, the, the nanoparticle of the lipid envelope also, which is toxic is another pretty straightforward mechanism, but there are all sorts of other, other ways. Autoimmunity, you've talked about that already, Chris, uh, the idea that you, you recognize whatever these tissues or that now have the, 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 the COVID shot substance in them as foreign bodies, you cross react to them. So autoimmune disease, but there's a lot of other ones there's in you know affecting people's ability to uh, to protect their dna there's there's so many uh, the whole idea of turbo cancer too that's that's another area then we look at uh, oh my gosh this you know we can go keep on going into what is really in these shots you know and there's all sorts of questions about you know what what do they really have and depending on who you listen to or what you what you read so um, there's no doubt it's it's a multi-pronged attack on human health Oh yeah, SV40 has now been proven to be in there and one fact, not, not officially in the vaccine, but in the plasmid contamination. They allowed DNA plasmid contamination physically into it. That's why they couldn't call it a vaccine. It's never been called a vaccine on paper. It's called so a military SV40. countermeasure. And because SV40. it's called a military countermeasure, they can get it away with it having more contamination in it than it should. And this plasmid contamination means that SV40 is physically in the vial when it's uh, going SV40. into us. Uh, Chris, SV40 is simian virus 40, right? That's what you're talking about. That was That's what I'm talking about. Trial. And the contamination with that effectively does augment the possibility of cancer for the recipient. Mm -hmm. It's Yeah, I think they they isolated that post -polio sh in uh, post-polio shots, but they they thought they were linked to, to contamination after- And it's in uh, these. It's in these. Brain. It's proven now to be in this COVID-19 shots. Yeah. It's associated with brain tumors. That's not a good thing, ladies and gentlemen, to our non-medical people who are watching this, to the people who are caring about their own lives across the country. We have to be realistic about what the science is now telling us. And if we're finding that a simian virus 40 or aspects of it are physically within the jab, and if we're finding that DNA excess, there shouldn't be any DNA in it, but there is some, Dr. McKernan has found, and many other supportive physicians, such as Dr. Lapatova and uh, Dr. Jessica Rose and Karen Kingston, the, the, the sources are multiple that are letting us know that there's plasmid DNA, which is in these shots. At least a third of the weight of quote unquote RNA is actually the weight of DNA. And now if the, DNA is going into our bodies, courtesy of these shots. The, the issue about that though, I think is that the DNA could influence, uh, it, once in the nucleus, it could actually influence the, the way the cell acts. and uh, it maybe have some component in terms of replication as well. In other words, could be passed on to uh, future generations. That's another issue. And we're not wrong to be talking about it because we're talking about it based upon the scientific assessments of very senior and appropriate people. And many in the world don't want this to be talked about, but we are at least talking about it here. Thank you guys for being as open to talk about it as we are. So I've, I've got a question for you guys, um, a, a puzzle. What What is next? I think we're kind of in this, this summer of quiet time. You know, typically when they when you want to um, capture people in a in a fear paradigm, you 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 have breaks where things quiet down, let people rest and sort of, you know, take a bit of a, a time off like we're having now. And then something comes next. So what do you guys think is going to be next? I, well, I think I, that... I'll go ahead. You go ahead, Charles. Okay. Now I was just going to say, um, 
we know that they've been working on gain of function on numerous different uh, biological weapons. Um, and they have found that vaccine passports were a very effective way of enslaving people, of, of literally being able to control where you did and what you did and for how long. So, and they've also found how incredibly effective propaganda is, where, where, the, where the, the, the vaccine manufacturers or the political forces take control of the media, they can use, they've been extremely effective in uh, completely deceiving the great majority of the population. So I think in terms of whatever is next, the most crucial thing that people need to realize that this pandemic has revealed who you can trust and who you can't. And we have learned that you cannot trust the legacy media, you cannot trust our elected officials, and you cannot trust public health because they all spun a web of lies that has has been devastating to all of us and to our families and to our communities. So unfortunately, people have a very short memory. But just like with the native people, we sometimes say to them, remember the smallpox blankets? That was what was done on the on the coast of BC when they were trying to reduce the population um, of the native communities, and they gave them clothing and blankets that were filled with smallpox viruses, knowing that this would decimate their communities and you sure reduce that's true? Them. You sure that's true, Charles? I'm wondering about that one. Well, I, you know, I, I, and tra tragically, there have been times in history where authorities have, have used subversive tactics to... That I don't doubt. To... Um, to subdue people who they need to control. And I they've used methods to control fertility, they, to control food supply. Uh, oh, they've yeah. used disease. Um, they've used um, just genocide, um, you know, as we've seen in various countries around the world. And so we need to remember who we discovered was untrustworthy, and people need to not forget that. Yeah, I agree. I just wonder about that smallpox blanket story because, you know, the more I uh, the more I hear and more I read, I'm really starting to wonder about this virus, the idea of viruses and so on, and whether they really exist or not. I really have a big question mark about that. If, and if and if viruses don't exist, then this, the gain of function issue is another kind of red herring. And uh, I, I'm kind of surprised that they would have a wet market where this all started from which is, just happens to be down the road from the Wuhan lab. You know, it's like, it's a little bit suspicious. You, you think if you really wanted to have a good fake story, you would have it in another province perhaps. So I'm just kind of wondering, you know, there's these levels of, of, um, of deceit. Uh, you know, some of them are like designed for the first level of deceit. Then there's another level and then there's, you might get down to the truth. But uh, anyway, I'm just, I'm just curious, but I, I do have some doubt about the smallpox bank blankets. I wonder whether they weren't bed bugs, but. Uh, well, I do know that coronaviruses existed before this and coronaviruses will exist after this. And they are seen on electron microscopy. And uh, I, I, I can't get in on that side of it. I think that viruses do exist. I just think this was a particularly generated by virus in a specific circumstance. To be honest, and uh, you asked what might be coming next. I'm also not someone yeah. who can predict the future. Um, but I do know what 
I found was the the light and the hope and the truth in the present or what we just went through. And that was that um, people had to speak um, the truth and and advocate for um, uh, for for their principles um, and and come together in a grassroots type of way. Um, because I think when you know that the the, the centralized routes of information dissemination are uh, are corrupted um, by design or not, just by uh, by the way they might evolve through malincentives. Um, who knows? Because I I, I don't want to speak to intent on any of that, even with the word design, because you know they maybe it was designed to go everywhere. Maybe it just it was designed to stay in one place. But we know from the studies it goes everywhere. Regardless of, of the fact is when you we have to search for the truth by by coming back to what um, how in a decentralized way how humans evolve um, speaking to our neighbors talking to our friends um, discussing uh, you know uh, concepts um, that uh, are important to us and uh, and I think I think that's that's very important as we go to truth when we think about truth to me it's kind of funny that um, you think well the people who stood up risked losing their jobs risk losing their reputation. So if you're going to lose money and you're going to lose reputation or power, then obviously that could not have been our incentive for us to do what we did and to stand up, right? Because we were losing those things. So what were yeah. the incentives? Well, the incentives right. we had were to stand for principles, to stand for, stand for love of humankind and say, we don't want people to be harmed. You know, we, we, we want people to, to thrive. We want human beings and our families and our friends and everybody that we, we swore an oath to, uh, to care for. So, um, so I think, um, in, in any time I have a question about how to proceed forward or what we think is coming or, um, um, how we, you know, what, what, what should be my next steps? I always say some things are too complex to, to sort of opine on because you can go down the wrong direction. But if I've always bring it back to the, the, my, the first principles or the principles of uh, um, what those values are and uh, uh, and what things uh, um, are the most important, uh, I know that I'll, I'll I'll go in the right direction. If I could say to my colleague, Dr. Justin Chin, I'm just enthralled with what you've just said. That is exactly the route we need to go. Your caring of how patients are going to be cared for over the years ahead makes me very confident in how it will be. I'll be stepping off stage left in the next three or four years. And that's fine. So from the oldest to the youngest, I just want to compliment what you just said. Thank you. One thing I'd like to say is that in any crisis, it is the person who does nothing that is part of the problem. You know, Edmund Burke was that famous English politician in the 17th century. And he said, all that is needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And unfortunately, there were a lot of good people who did nothing. And so evil triumphed in this pandemic and a huge number of people have been hurt. And so if we are truly to love our neighbor, we need to be able to risk our own well-being to keep our neighbor safe. If you see your neighbor in danger or being deceived or being taken in in some way, it is one's loving duty to them to come alongside them and to reveal the danger or to reveal the threat or the deception. So I think, um, I hope that that, that that is something that that people will learn from this is that it is never okay to do nothing. Uh, it is our duty to our neighbor to keep one another safe. <laughs> people fall, more people falling in equation though, Charles, in other words, they, 
they balance the outcomes of, of action versus the consequences to, you know to themselves type of thing and then they say well you know i really like to say something but if i do i'll you know i won't be able to feed my kids or something like you know like that so there, there are all these kind of equations in people's heads or that they go through to try to figure out whether it's worth it for them to to take the step but there I but, think if it, enough, mm-hmm. but if enough people will stand up um it makes a huge difference when you've got oh, a couple yeah. of places in the wilderness it is much more challenging but when you get a significant body of the medical profession or of the legal profession or whatever the professions just like the truckers if it was just three truckers that went to ottawa it wouldn't have made much of a splash but enough of them were willing to stand up that it literally sent a wave of hope across the world right and, and also enough people true true that was risk and expense for them too i mean you oh, know yeah, they had to leave yeah. their jobs and threaten get fired so what 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 was it in those in those truckers canadian truckers that really caused that movement to happen moral Gosh, courage it was, it was so inspiring they were courageous enough to come from new brunswick to come from british columbia to cross through winnipeg to cross across ontario you know the police in ottawa apparently were surprised that they were talking in many ways that they weren't as thoroughly prepared for what was coming like they couldn't believe that it was thousands of trucks well if they'd been watching television for three days they'd have seen that it was thousands of trucks and it was in the middle of the winter they're really cold weather and so on i mean it was really an incredible feat but what was it that that causes humans to rise up i mean for obviously it has to start with a few i mean that's the way it goes and then we know we know that sort of uh, that picture of the the guy dancing who dances in a very crazy fashion out in the field and eventually one or two people come and join him and mm. then eventually it becomes everybody gets up from the picnic blankets and goes and dances right so but what is it that is in humans and i don't think it's an intellectual thing I, not at all I, I think it's something else that causes people to do the right thing and you know we talk about compassion and love and taking care of your patients and so on just like the hippocratic oath it's you know it's kind of a a little bit superficial because when someone then threatens you, you know, you might say, "Okay, to heck with my patients," you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to protect my family. And um, so, I think there's another layer, another layer that we have to go to to f- to figure out what motivates people to do the right thing. Well. We're all doing it here today, I think, each with our separate opinions, uh, separate scientific awarenesses. Uh, That's what discussions are always supposed to be about. It'd be nice someday to have 16 boxes instead of just four, and maybe even a third of those boxes being from people who are quite opposite to what things we're believing. But let's have that wider discussion. Let's look to what's uh, been learned over the last three and a half years. And it's certainly the one thing we have learned is that uh, there's hope if we trust in multiple opinions. Multiple opinions need to be out there. It's unsafe if you can't have various opinions being expressed. And if it becomes just a single narrative, then that single narrative has a likelihood of, of being controlled. The only way you have good opinions, if the multiple opinions can be there, and then one wins out over the other because people are really listening to the various opinions. We weren't allowed to listen to various opinions, were we, a year and a half, two years ago? We're sure as heck gonna listen to them now. We're part of the voice of the alternative opinions. We have expertise that we've learned to have. I've become a better scientist in the last two years than I was before, because I've been learning from some pretty fantastic scientists who have educated all of us. So 
the opinions are getting through. Let's keep letting them get through. I guess that's my message to our general audience. And uh, back to you guys. Yeah, a comment I'll make on that um, here, and not to go back into specific kind of smaller examples, is I think that we all need to understand that um, um, the reason why you need those diverse opinions or positions and debate what's going on is because everybody can get something wrong or not understand the world. And only as we progress into the future, will we learn things. So I've done a 180 on some things. Um, uh, I, I would think going through that, um, a specific one that, and I'm, and I might flip back 180 again, the other way when I learn more, but um, you know, one of those things is, uh, um, and, and I'm, it might, it might be even a challenge to people in, in, in this, uh, in this room as, as we debated. Uh, and that, and that is my position changed um, on, on vitamin D in one way. Now, don't get me wrong. I still actually truly believe that vitamin D um, uh, is critical um, or having a vitamin D level that's high is critical to health and, uh, uh, and to our immune system. And I think um, uh, there are studies that uh, back that up. Um, when you showed that, uh, you know, patients with uh, a vitamin D level lower than 40 nanograms per mil were the ones that were seen in ICUs and the patients who were above it did not end up needing critical care. Um, and so what was it um, um, from that level that made me think, well, obviously myself and my family and everybody, I would, we should have our vitamin D levels as optimized as possible. And, and, and so I still believe that. Now, here's the thing, though, is what we don't know is um, even though vitamin D receptors are found in immune cells and there's biologic plausible mechanisms for why that'll help, um, I'm no longer as convinced as I used to be that supplementing vitamin D orally is, is, is the way to go. Um, and whether or not the biomarker itself um, is, is basically um, uh, a surrogate for the, the, the amount of uh, uh, mitochondrial health you'll get from getting natural sunlight. Um, mm -hmm. And from having uh, not having damage from um, non-native EMFs or from like sort of blue light toxicity and uh, and being indoors, like it, uh, essentially to summarize it very shortly, is that we we have to contend with some of the studies that showed that if you took uh, a patient and you gave them vitamin D for their COVID, even you gave them bolus doses, that the, the outcomes didn't change in some of those studies. Now again, we can talk about the flaws of studies, and we can talk about why some studies showed it. Did it? Did, did they not? They need the vitamin D from before. Did they have vitamin D? Um, did they have vitamin D? Uh, um, re they were replete to begin with, so there wasn't much of a benefit shown. So that's why the study was designed to fail. I, and I'm happy to say that there's there's competing interest um, on, on all sides. Um, my current level of thinking now now is that uh, uh, has has changed somewhat into the, into the fact that if somebody is severely vitamin D deplete, then uh, I think supplementation orally may help, but I think there might be a, there might be benefits to um, obtaining vitamin D naturally um, uh, through sunshine and its effects on uh, mitochondrial health um, and its effects on vitamin A metabolism and, uh, and, and on, you know, many other aspects of, uh, of what come along with that from nitric oxide release in the, in the blood vessels and so on that can prevent cytokine storm and so on. So, you know, I think, I don't want to get into a, a huge debate on this and I could be wrong again. I could be wrong that maybe vitamin D supplementation orally is a, a complete, um, it can make up fully for, for, for the same vitamin D as sunshine. I don't believe it at this point in time, but what I'm trying to say is even throughout the last three years, my own thinking and my own opinion um, has changed from one, you know, in, in, in different ways, but that's the humility that all of us need to approach medicine with. Um, because if somebody had said, well, 
the case is closed on this, just supplement to everybody. We might not know that we might be missing an, an aspect that uh, um, that I, I, I think uh, might be important because we'll only discover that by saying, no, the case is never closed on any of the things that we think about. And we have to always be considering um, new information, new discoveries, new innovations, um, uh, and, uh, and, and new, I guess, uh, um, evidence of, of how humans can stay healthy. Yeah. Well, vitamin D, vitamin D supplementation is probably the closest, you know, um, approximation we can get, you know, to the sunlight and, and the sun has many other aspects to it. Right. And vitamin D is not independent by itself either. It depends upon magnesium and other parts, you know, to really, to, to do its job. So I agree with you. It's been like the idea that you can extract something from a plant, uh, and then, you know, and, and think that that you can, and usually it's done so you can market it, right. So you can put a name on it and as a product that extracting something of the plant is as good as the, the plant, which is like a, you know, a, um, a whole chemistry lab in there uh, and that it can do the same job. I think we've kind of learned that, that it's more of a, of an interactive uh, um, effect. Yeah. Um, being too reductionist can call, can, can lead to us uh, thinking yeah. we, we've solved the problem when, 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 uh, when, when we could, we, we could be going down the wrong path just unintentionally. Yeah. So and it's why our colleague, Dr. McCullough, uh, deserves applause for speaking to multiple therapies, that multiple therapies, because perhaps in one patient, vitamin D is going to be crucial. For another patient, it's going to be the an anti-inflammatory effect of an ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. For another patient, it's going to be zinc assisting those zinc ionophores to do their job. And for another patient, they're going to need some good budesonide early on to make a difference or they won't get through the next three or four hours. So there are multiple therapies that could and should be used. We're doctors, we all know that multiple, you sometimes need 10 medications to help a patient through a particular crisis. Let's use all 10. When we could wean down to three, we'll wean down to three. But we get started in a variety of directions that's generally what happens if we're allowed to be thoughtful about it yeah and it's, it's, it's not to the debates of uh you know this isn't the this isn't the right the, the platform or setting to just go into each little thing but it's more to just say that um you have to have you have to have this uh type of uh uh scientific uh humility um and and explore in all ways um and that's how you pursue truth because i think i wanted to bring it back to the the um the uh, the theme of uh, and the title of this uh, of this roundtable with just truth and transparency in medicine um, and um, um, you need that truth and you need to you search for it in you know in, in a very open way and you can't do that without transparency um, um, in the darkness um, you you, uh, you in trying to limit it that that is a that is a that is certainly a way to guarantee failure I'm not saying that um, you know complete open robust debates not always going to get us in the right direction you can always be steered wrong um and then hopefully course corrected back but um if you want to guarantee that uh something doesn't get uh, get looked at you you hide it and you keep it you censor and you keep things in complete darkness and would you agree dr chin in the icu you would need truth transparency and certainly occasionally competitive ideas well i'm gonna i'll correct the record for that i i did um, I did take up some shifts uh, to assist in the ICU during this, but my primary role um, is in the emergency department, uh, not, I'm not an intensivist or a critical care physician. I just I understand. Okay. helped out, and I'm a disaster medicine specialist um, that right. uh, that will field work. But but your but your answer is yes. We we do need to uh, um, uh, to explore things uh, uh, in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Charles, perhaps to you, I think it might be your turn to jump in on what we've just been talking about. 
Yeah, you know, if anybody tells you that the science on anything is settled, you know that they are wrong. Because science, we never know what we do not know. And, and, and science and medicine are always a work in progress. And so, you know, that, that's what was so absurd when the colleges told doctors that they were not allowed to uh, contradict the public health narrative. That was essentially shutting down scientific debate. It was saying that the science is settled. It's a bit like the climate change. Anybody says that the science of climate change is settled doesn't understand science because science is always evolving. And, and so, so I agree with, with Dr. Chin, we need to have enough humility to, to admit that we don't know what we don't know. But I also want to just add a very important quote by Sir Winston Churchill, who said <laughs> that the world is made darker by the light of perverted science. And that is exactly what we have seen in this pandemic, in this pandemic, is that the world has been made darker by the, the light of perverted science. We saw that in their fraudulent science that they used to, to suppress the truth about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. We saw this in all of their ridiculous science about masks and lockdowns and, and all of these uh, schools. I mean, there was, none of it was based on any empirical evidence of any value. Um, they, they, they literally suppressed the truth um, and then told doctors they weren't allowed to disagree. Uh, we, we, need, we need to have the humility to constantly be questioning everything and never think that we know it all. And Charles, the things that you just spoke about, the doctors who did follow in Houston, Texas, and certain parts of the states which were able to utilize ivermectin more vigorously, they had wonderful results, like, you know, 999 out of 1,000 patients who were actually clinically quite ill, all fully recovered. There's also been a study in which they had 80 patients in different hospitals who were appealing, and they went to the courts so that they could be given ivermectin. 40, the court said yes. 40, the court said no. The 40 that were allowed to take the ivermectin, quote unquote, in time, all survived. The 40 where the courts didn't allow the hospital to be overruled and the hospital was going to have it say so and ivermectin would not be given to those patients, 39 out of those 40 died. So if you've got ratios as severe as that, that's not a randomized controlled study totally. Well, it's a little bit randomized. It was totally randomized as to which judge you got. <laughs> and the 40 who got the judge who wouldn't let you have it, 39 out of 40, 39 out of 40 gone. The 40 who were allowed to receive it, lived and left the hospital. So we doctors are not dummies. We see statistics like that. We see SpO2 improvements when the doctors out of, uh, I think it was Nigeria, South Africa, and California, it was in three separate settings that used and measured SpO2 changes after being given ivermectin on a clinically relevant moment. And the SpO2 changes over three, four, five hours were just tremendous when given the medication. So. It's, it's a complete lie that ivermectin doesn't work. It works brilliantly. And it's a complete lie that it doesn't help vaccine injury because it assists a lot of vaccine injuries very successfully too. Dr. Corey can give you all, lots of examples of that. And we know of that. So again, I just want to make those points to the wider audience. Perhaps I believe these points a little stronger than some do, so be it. 
but I do believe it, and I do believe the SPO2 studies, and I do believe that randomized controlled by judge study when it's 40 in one direction and 40 in the other. Not quite a rant, not entirely randomized. I think it's because the, well, it is, but the controls are not necessarily matched. But I agree with you that, you know, it is, it's a definitely a strong pointer that ivermectin works. And, um, but I, I think what it is more is that, you know, as we get, we start relying upon this, these type of studies is that uh, the unintended consequence perhaps is that, although I think those studies are good, is that uh, doctors are losing confidence in their ability to diagnose and, um, and I think we're seeing this that and, and they're just they're going with uh, with algorithms or guidelines to tell them what to do next and, and mm. how to think. So this this is something which is the problem is that thinking independently has kind of almost disappeared from our profession in some ways. As far I can tell, Justin, maybe you can comment on that. Uh, emergency is different because you guys, I, I I really admire emergency room doctors and the fact that they they can really think on their feet. They're they're dealing with serious diseases and people that are really sick and. Um, but is is independent thinking dis disappearing? It's a very complex and loaded question. I mean, I think um, how I would say say to that is that the one thing about what we try to train our medical students or residents as they come through is that you always need to keep a broad differential diagnosis on everything. So you that that is the kind of a another way of saying you need to critically think. You need to kind of consider every single option. So um, so emergency physicians in general um, tend to um, to do that. Now, the the compartmentalization and the, the of, of medicine, the way we have it now, and the way we select for medical students and the complexity that we have to reduce things, yeah, that's why that area becomes complex is because uh, in that way, we have um, at least, uh, I, I can see a lot where um, we can get, uh, we can follow certain heuristics in medicine, which is, you know, um, where, where you follow what the textbook says, or you follow what, uh, um, you know, what you've been taught. And in that way, um, blind following is not critical thinking. It's the exact opposite. So we have both of those competing things that, uh, um, that we need to uh, um, contend with. And I think that going forward, um, that's one of the things that um, we need to really stress when we, when we, bring up the next generation of medical practitioners or health practitioners, but also all humans, I guess, um, our children, our families and say, you know, you need to critically think uh, about what, uh, what, how you're going to interpret the world when you get told by the television, you know, that, or you're, you're watching something, an advert comes on, are you, are you being conditioned to want to go buy that product that you don't need? Um, you know, that's, that's you're not critically thinking there um when when somebody tells you something um, are they repeating something that is um that was just told to them and they don't they're not thinking back to a first principles you're not critically thinking uh and so um yeah there's always going to be that competing um uh <laughs> ends of the spectrum but i think that uh, um what we can do to assist future generations of both uh, you know society and as well as uh, healthcare physicians is, is to encourage critical thinking in, in, in all aspects of uh, our lives, including uh, how we practice medicine and in healthcare. Is there another question about that? Is there, is there a thing, uh, is there emotional intelligence in the, in the uh, emergency room? I would hope so. I cared no, the heck out of my patients. I, I worked in emergency for 20 years mm -hmm. as an emerge physician. 
I haven't done it for the last 20 years, but I sure as hell did do it for 20 years. And you do it to help the person in front of you. You do whatever you can. The multiple decision makings that Dr. Chin just spoke of and having a differential diagnosis that you're willing to vary as the circumstance changes in front of you, that's absolutely critical, both in emergency care and in generalized internal medical care. You figure things out and you keep figuring things out, but you figure it out because you have a soul and you care for the persons in front of you. You are not a robot. They are not a ro robot. They are a human being who deserves to live out the day, if at all possible. And that's your job, is to make that happen. So I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is, what other, what other things besides your brain do you use in the emergency department? Your soul and your heart. <laughs> I'm not a subject matter expert to be able to fully flush out, or uh, maybe I don't fully understand the question, but... But you're right. We don't always make decisions um, on, you know, uh, you know, type one versus type two thinking and out of complete rationality. There's there's multiple factors that uh, go into us. I mean, we're we're still these, you know, silly talking monkeys. Like we're biologic beings that have evolved over many years. And to answer exactly um, what how we what inputs and what we do to interpret those inputs and then how we respond. Yeah. I, I think there are. I think there's probably many ways why, by which we, uh, uh, how we make our decisions. Uh, I'm not an expert in, uh, in in commenting on, you know, the complexities of how that works. But uh, I, but I would definitely um, agree that it probably is uh, way more complex than we give credit for. And emotions and intelligence and um, critical thinking and, um, you know, <laughs> how. How, how much sleep we had the night before, or what our hormones are looking like uh, uh, that day. Uh, there, there's probably in the, in the hundreds of factors that go into uh, to things, and uh, um, on top of our genetics and epigenetics. So, uh, so, I mean, my my answer is uh, I don't I know specifically what what we use to make decisions, but I know it's complex. I think I'll give Dr. Hoff a shot at that general topic too, Charles, if you don't mind. Yeah, you know, I think we are all uniquely complex and so is every patient. And so every, every, I often think that, you know, sometimes we, we don't realize what prejudices we might have, what preconceived ideas are actually coloring our decision making. Um, we, we also never get all of the information. You know, every every person you meet is fighting various battles that you know nothing about that may change what they say and what they do and how they behave. And so we never have all of the information. And so we need to be very sensitive and compassionate. And and I mean, for myself, I always just pray for wisdom that that mm -hmm. that, that I would literally have a deep sense of of um yeah of trying to pick up subtle cues that might give one tips to the best way to deal with this you know emotional spiritual aspects that may be changing the way the patient presents in the emergency room that that, that may change them mentally or physically yeah sometimes mental anguish can cause physical symptoms and 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 or exaggerate them um and and so we have to always realize that there that, that every person is unique and and that we always only have part of the information yeah i think the the word you used wisdom is kind of different from just you know knowledge or you know what you get with your thinking apparatus 
And I, mm -hmm. I, I believe that that is kind of where we're, we're going to have to turn because um, it seems like uh, all the other ones can be hijacked pretty easily, but wisdom must come from a different, a deep, deeper source, perhaps a spiritual source even, you know, and, um, and that that's, that's something that we're going to have to learn how to cultivate for the future in medicine for sure. Because the, yeah. um, you know, just, it's been like, you know, if you go, if you're not balanced in some ways yourself and, and you don't have some connection, I just think of an example where after seeing a patient when I was just practicing homeopathy and, you know, I was going through my mind trying to think what is the right remedy to give this person. And I was standing out there in front of the medicine cabinet, the homeopathic medicine cabinet that I had. And, um, and I, I really didn't know which one to choose. You know, I was kind of stumped. I, and I was thinking of along certain lines, but I just, it was by a big window and I just kind of turned to the window and stood there for a while, just looking out and just really kind of opening oneself to other influences. And suddenly the idea of what was the correct remedy came to me. And uh, sure enough, it, it worked beautifully for that patient. But it was kind of like, um, I think, uh, calling on a different source um, for, for, for knowing or for understanding or for, for that, that sense of, you know, the right thing to do. I have a feeling that's where we're going to go. And that's kind of where I was pointing my questions at, you know, regarding to critical thinking is that, um, you know, people who just use their brain, I don't think that's going to be enough for the future of medicine. In some cases, definitely a tool has to be used, but I don't think we can ignore um, some of the more subtle things. And maybe if we can open that channel up, we can we can have a type of knowing which is is uh, maybe faster and more accurate. Instincts and a soul and experience, <laughs> they, yeah. they are part of the picture for sure. Altogether. Uh, it's been great to be sharing with each other. And uh, we're not really going to totally wind down now, but we're going to give it a, a bit of a thought that we might wind down over these next 10 minutes or so, guys, um, if that feels comfortable with everyone. Uh, I'll, I'll start off with a bit of a, uh, just a closing comment that the doctors, Didier Raoult in the south of France, Dr. Zelenko in New York State, Dr. McCullough, eminent cardiologist in Texas, they just didn't come out of the blue thinking, well, how about hydroxychloroquine or how about ivermectin? It wasn't out of the blue. They were reading studies that had been done for the 12 years before. They were reading what scientists and labs had done to see what worked against SARS-CoV-1. They were knowledgeable physicians who read the papers that let us know if there was ever going to be another COVID-type pandemic of some kind in the world, that those were the two best medications to consider. You know, Anti-inflammatories per se weren't on the list. Penicillin wasn't on the list. There were two very specific drugs because of their unique ability to affect up to 40 different aspects of SARS-CoV-1 that they should be considered first if there was ever a SARS-CoV-2. So very smart physicians made it very clear in their best efforts, and we're seeing some early good responses to those best efforts. And those were pushed aside, those were pushed down, those were lied about by people who wanted this pandemic to harm people. And that's my closing comment as we begin to wind down our discussion. But I really thank everyone, especially our audience, for watching with us. I'd like to now go around the circle and let everybody else have a closing comment as well. Perhaps Charles or Stephen or whoever. I think you should start with the youngest first. All right. All right. For a change. For a change. I, I, may, I may have spoken 
too much and taking up too much time in this whole conversation. I, I think my closing comment is that, uh, you know, um, the, the big picture is, is that, um, you know, we all need to um, have that humility to that uh, Charles was uh, referencing um, and seek that wisdom um, and, and use first principles thinking um, to, to get to the truth if we can. There are many things that, you know, some people stated here that could be hypotheses that I haven't flushed out as deeply or not. But but the point is, is that the more we the more we openly and transparently talk about these things um, and explore them, we can find out if they're true or if they're false. So, and then we can continue to reiterate um, our thinking over things. So um, uh, many of those things I say I, I don't have a comment on or I don't know enough about it. I'm not an expert on that or I have no no information or knowledge on that subject. However, I'm not going to discount them because uh, that that would be a, a level of uh, ignorance in itself to discount things um, in the pursuit of truth. So um, I think that um, uh, I think my my message of hope going forward here to everyone is that uh, I think the more we speak out, um, the more people uh, um, uh, will uh, will follow our lead um, and do the same thing, and then um, that light will spread. Um, because uh, once you let light out, it, it it spreads, and the same thing is with truth. Wonderful, Stephen or Charles? I don't know, Charles. Are you older than me? Or yeah, no, I'm younger than you, Stephen. So okay, so I'll I'll follow on, and I'll say that um, just as fear is contagious, so is courage. And so we need to realize that that um, that we there there are crises crises are going to be coming in the future. I think this is part of a much bigger picture. It's a war against humanity, and whatever the next crisis is, we need to really really remember what we've learned from this. And what we've learned from this is who we can't trust. And we need to have also learned from this that there is pretty well no medical disease that has no treatment. So if they come up with another pandemic and tell us there's no treatment, just wait for the vaccine. Just remember COVID. You know, as you as you said, uh, Chris. You know, doctors have known since 2006 that hydroxychloroquine was effective against coronaviruses, and they'd known. For more than a decade before this pandemic, that ivermectin had antiviral qualities. And mm -hmm. so, so when they told us that these two drugs, which were both on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines because they were so safe and so effective for other, uh, other conditions, and when they suddenly were said they, they're not safe to use for COVID, they've been safe for, for decades for other things, but not safe for COVID, it made no sense. No. So we need to we need to, as we've mentioned, learn to think outside of the box, not accept just what we are told by those who have proven themselves to be untrustworthy. We need to try and remember these things so that we don't get deceived twice. But most of all, you know, there are a lot of people who took these shots for one reason or other. Either they were deceived or coerced or or they were forced into it. You know, they were they were told that they were going to not be able to visit people in hospital, or they're not going to get a medical treatment, or they 
or they're being deprived of their livelihood and they were forced mm -hmm. into it. And people are, are, are now afraid because this is the new thalidomide. It's going to take years for, for us to figure out the true depth of harm that this has done to people, just like it took years for doctors who thought that thalidomide was safe and effective, took years for, for it to be revealed how much harm it was doing. So one of the things that I, I just want people to remember, because people are, people are wondering, is this going to shorten my life? What is this going to do to me? Psalm 139 says that God has ordained the number of your days before you were born. And if God has ordained the number of your days, there is no virus or no vaccine or no disease of any kind that can change what God has ordained. So don't live in fear. If you're listening to this, God bless you. And, and let's move forward in courage, remembering what we've learned from this so that we don't make the same mistakes again. Thank you, Charles. Over to my colleague, Stephen. I, I'm just wondering, Chris, if I'm older than you or younger than you. Uh, you're <laughs> definitely younger than me. I am the old bird in this group. Over to you, pal. Okay. Well, my, my kind of feeling is that, you know, this, this uh, we could call it the pandemic because it was a global move that was not based on science, right? And it was, uh, no, we didn't have the excess deaths it required to make it a pandemic. But uh, so there was a, there was definitely a psyop going on, which, uh, you know, people will put in place and their various different motivations for why they did things. But I think the issue comes down, one of the main, one of the main things that motivated people was fear. And uh, so, and it hasn't really been a, a, an interesting look into human nature in these last three years, but fear was definitely a big motivating factor. And so my, my question is, what does it take to make people immune to fear? Right? Because uh, I would say that people that spoke out, uh, you know, the, the bunch of us here probably had a certain degree of fear, and anxiety, what was going to happen to them. But for some reason, you just put that aside or you just, you know, you knew it was there, but you went ahead anyway. Right. Because you knew it was the right thing to do. So I think this is really um, the question is how to become fearless in today's in today's age. And um, I think that that is kind of probably a job for all of us. I have some ideas about what it takes, but certainly it's connected to the idea of wisdom and knowing. Um, but if we can, if we can strive to be fearless, it means that we have an understanding of how things really are. And if that's the case, um, then it doesn't matter what comes next because, you know, everything will be grist for the mill. It will, you know, everything they throw at us, which could be, you know, the climate change, lockdowns, you know, uh, food shortages, everything that, um, that for those of us that are trying to become fearless will really just be, uh, will energize us to, to just go further down the path to understand. So, um, yeah, that's my message is, um, you know, just really um, try to figure out what make what it, what it requires to become fearless. And uh, and the rest will, I think, be fairly easy. Well, thank you for that, Stephen. And the opposite of fearlessness is on either love or bravery. You can take your pick. They both help a lot in having fear go away. So we're learning to be brave here. We've been brave here as a group, I think, to say what we've said. And uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank the audience very much for joining us and listening to us and giving us this chance to express what we want to let you all know. One last thing I want to let you all know is that two days from now, on Wednesday the 19th, the NCI will be having a very special, uh, uh, I guess you call it, interview. Uh, again, a, a uh, interview which is uh, being attested to. 
by Dr. McCullough. And Dr. McCullough will make attestations of fact at 6 p.m. on the NCI channel as to his knowledge of more damage being caused by vaccines, which is absolutely crucial to know. More clinical evidence of clear, absolute mechanisms and data of vaccine injury. So to our audience out there, please do not miss Wednesday the 19th at 6 p.m. on the NCI channel. That'll be Eastern time, uh, Chris? That'll be Eastern time, 6 p.m. Yes, indeed. Okay, we'll see you there. That's the NCI, and uh, we're going to say goodbye to the NCI who is hosting us now uh, with great thanks to our audience for spending time with us, and thank you guys. I think we had a wonderful time together. Thank thanks. You. Goodbye. See you Cheers. later. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens' Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there, so please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens' Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.